Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Borsham. And today, well, again today we're not joined by uh, any guests. It's just, uh, it's just Franz and Matt again uh, today. Partly a function of the fact that um, we are in lockdown <laughs> again. This is, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, we recorded in November when we were in the middle of or at the start of lockdown two. Um, we just started numbering the lockdowns because we we're into the second one. And now, again, uh, start of January, and we are in what's more like the first lockdown again, right? A serious... Oh, gosh, yeah. Happy New Year, Happy New Year to you <laughs> and everyone, I guess. It's uh, what a start. I, I, you know, I, wasn't, I was kind of dreading this, but uh, we had a good Christmas, you know, stayed at home. I had my whole family was booked to come over, and they didn't in the end, so that was, that was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But um, yeah, oh God, back to school closures. It feels like March all over again. So I think it's going to be a tough, tough couple of weeks ahead for uh, many of us, not all of us, but many of us. Yeah. So, I mean, before, before we got to lockdown, you had, a good, uh, you had some good Christmas presents. Any? Uh... Oh, yeah. Well, Christmas presents. I got two goats, actually. Two goats? Two goats. Yeah, yeah, two goats. So my wife said, you know, that's it. Um, I, and, and she literally bought me two goats, but it was one of these uh, charity aid things. So my oh, goats right. got okay. sent to Africa so that somebody could uh, generate some milk. And I got a nice little printout from the email saying, you just bought two goats. And nice. well, that seems to be <laughs> the way it's going for me. Um, yeah, so that was my present. The kids got more physical presents. Right, that's good. Yeah, they tend to prefer that, I think. Yeah. Um, How about you? <laughs> uh, just, just classic slippers. You know, this is. Oh. Uh, but I find this, yeah, increasingly, I just, I don't know. I, I, slippers, I'm happy. You know, that is something I practically need. This is going to affect my quality of life on a daily basis, particularly now when it's really cold. So, um, so yeah, slippers and and books and you know the odd DVD kind of thing. That's. Uh, that's pretty much well it. i did take matters into my own hands because i was expecting very little physical yeah. so i did buy myself some lego oh nice. uh, in fact imported from europe sort of uh, you know quickly before you know <laughs> brexit we can talk about that later and yeah. um, so I, i'm still hiding around the corner i haven't let the kids seen it yet and uh, i was hoping when they go back to school i can unpack it and play with it but it looks like it's going to have to stay uh, boxed for quite you, a bit. You're going to be waiting till, till March to be um, at the earliest <laughs> yeah, to be uh, yeah, doing yeah. that, probably, possibly. We'll yeah. see. But yeah, I mean, it, it literally it felt inevitable that we were going to have another um, a lockdown when you saw the numbers. But I found it even when it was announced, still a bit of a jolt. Um, and uh, yeah, so we will, in future episodes, have guests again. We have quite a few people lined up uh, to talk to us but I think for everybody things are a little bit up in the air so uh, uh, so it'll just be as today but I think yeah it's one of those where uh, like in March when it first happened it just takes a little while to work out the rhythm of life right how how are things going to be particularly with obviously for you and I find you know we both have kids and the school's being closed and uh, so obviously your wife works full-time as well since the last lockdown my wife has had a job and gone back to uh, teaching. And so now I'm in the situation that you're in. Lots of people are in where you've got two people who are working um, and you're having to juggle the kind of homeschool and home office for two of you. Um, so it's uh, just, yeah, it still feels a little bit like the storm is swirling. We haven't quite, things haven't quite settled in their new positions and we don't quite know how things are going to work. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. You know, um, I think um, we, we actually, I actually had this week still booked as a holiday. Uh, you know, my idea was the kids go back to school and I actually get some time with myself and the missus and we were going to do some nice things. Uh, and that's all gone out the window. And actually, as soon as Monday rolled around, I chucked all the holiday plans out the window and just started working like crazy to actually alleviate workload next week and the week after so that I won't be so stressed because it, I, there's no way it's, it's, that it's possible to work at 100% uh, in this kind of environment. And it's, it's, it's difficult and it's difficult for a lot of people because if you, if you think about, you know, modern day house prices and, you know, average salaries, you really need two people to work yeah. to afford mortgages these days to afford your whatever two bedroom flat in London. I mean, even that's yeah. probably out of reach for many. And, um, so it's just really challenging. I think, you know, I remember it was uh, uh, very stressful and I think it'll be stressful again. Um, so 
there we are. There we are. Let's see where we're going with all of this. Um, you know, the vaccine's on the way. Uh, so yeah. I guess that's good news. Go good news on, on, on the way. I mean, I guess we, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it feels slightly, you know, inevitable um, that this was going to happen when you saw what had been going on uh, over the weeks, you know, leading up to Christmas and then Christmas and then, and then afterwards. Um, and it's, you know, we could talk about specific numbers, but obviously they're changing every day. And there is this discussion about, you know, whether, oh, you know, these numbers of cases every day and it seems to be going up and up and, you know, records. Uh, but back in, in March and April, we didn't have that amount of testing. So, you know, we don't know whether there's more or less. Is it just because we're testing more people now? But I think what's important is that actually we can look at the hospitalizations and we can look at the capacity and we can see already that those, you know, that's the hard numbers where we can actually see, it doesn't matter how many, you know, that's not to do with how many people you're testing. That is, you know, the hard numbers of how many people are getting this disease and ending up in hospital. And we're already at those um, above the April peaks and you know, so much pressure on our, our health services who already you know have been doing a fantastic job all year or all last year and, and all this year um and so it's felt like we've got to do something right you're going to have to do, do something and um it's a bit of a blunt thing but um but yeah lockdown school closures uh hopefully that is going to make a big difference although it's slightly you know, worrying if you think about, well, the schools have been closed over Christmas uh, in these, you know, tier four areas, like in London and the southeast in particular. And that didn't seem to have very much of an impact um, on on the numbers, right? They were still going up. And so uh, it just really, you know, we don't know how many people mix at Christmas. That's the thing, I guess. Um, you just don't know. The rules were changed when they said that it was like, you know, just one day where you can see people. But you just don't know what what compliance was there you know we'll see where it goes i i i just i mean what, one thing i've noticed i must say since i've i've become a bit older and i had a family is that uh, i have <laughs> it's um, i started caring much more about the local world around me i think we had a discussion about this a couple of months ago right so you yeah. know i obviously watch the news i see boris johnson i have my opinion on policies we talk about policies a lot i have my opinion on things that happen in the world but um things that affect me locally my my family my house my you know environment within the 100 meters where i live i have actually become much much more important <laughs> so you yeah. know i think again i think i said this the other day you know i'm there fighting planning applications in my neighborhood <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah i've been doing a bit of that as well yeah, recently, yeah. But... so you know i i don't want to be an armchair general and sort of start talking about where we're going to go with all these numbers we'll we'll see where we go I think, you know, one thing I would like to talk about is just we've had lots of news on the vaccine. Lots of other countries mm. have news on the vaccines. And because I do check the news in many, uh, many countries, being European, uh, I see lots of pictures of the first patient receiving their vaccine. And it's all the same shot. Yeah. It's a person, an elderly person sitting down getting a shot in the arm. And every yeah. single country has like the first person massively, you know, splashed across the news pages. So I'm seeing yeah. that sort of slowly happen across the world. And I guess that's a good thing. But... Um, I kind of wanted to mention something that's been running behind the scenes a little bit and has also saved lots and lots of lives. And that's the recovery program run by the University of Oxford. And they've popped up in the news a couple of times, but not really that much. But you might hear more about them in the coming weeks because there's some new results coming out of them. Have you heard of them? Yeah, so this is... A company or, or, or organisation set up by some Oxford academics right, or Oxford scientists at the start of the mm -hmm. pandemic to um, trial out, do proper scientific clinical trials on various potential um, treatments for, for COVID, right? That's right. So basically what they're trying, so that, you know, their, their job is to try and, uh, you know, evaluate current existing licensed medications to see to what extent they work. And um, the great thing is really just how speedily it's been set up, right? And how many numbers they've recruited. Normally it takes years and years and years to set up yeah. any kind of trial and, you know, uh, let alone multiple trials and all this kind of stuff. One of their great successes is that they've just been, you know, going super speedily and just randomizing people into these different medications. And when we're talking about people here, we're mainly talking about people in hospital with COVID, right okay so this is this is kind of beyond the point of 
vaccine this is right okay everybody who's involved has already contracted the virus and is receiving treatment yeah this is kind of you know one portion of the population many people who get COVID, of course will ultimately just stay at home and kind of you know either not notice it or cough it out and yeah. wait but obviously a lot of people do end up in hospital as well and those ones have been actively uh, put into these um, well, experiments, that's what they are. They're really are experiments. And, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about the experimental nature of this in a second. But, you know, one of the, the, the interesting things is, for example, if you look at their finding about uh, dexamethasone, uh, which was in the news a while ago when they came out with their results, it's not, that is estimated to have already saved, you know, 650,000 lives across the world. So massive results um, from something that was set up very quickly and is evaluating current medication. Um, I guess I guess a good thing as well with these current medications, we've heard with the vaccines, obviously they've, they've expedited things and kind of processes have gone um, through the hoops quicker. I think with the, you know, with the same rigor, but just kind of cut out any slack or any delays and just quickly kind of evaluate things. But with these medicines that are already approved because there are existing treatments, that's a whole level of, you know, with a vaccine or any new medication, you've got to check that there aren't serious complications or side effects or anything like that. But because these are kind of known medications, that's um, speeds it all up, um, which is. Yeah, I mean, really... one of the big results that people are waiting for, for example, uh, the aspirin results should be coming out soon in the next yeah. couple of weeks. And, you know, obviously, I think we all have aspirin, aspirin lying yeah. around in our cupboards. So, you know, if that can be medically be shown to be effective, you know, I think we're all going to be quaffing the aspirin soon. Uh, yeah, and, and these are all uh, things yeah. as well, I guess, that um, are super cheap as well, right? Because the, um, they're just freely, uh, there's no patent on them anymore because they've been around long enough. Anyone can produce them. And yeah, I'm always amazed if you go into, um, I don't know, the, your local supermarket and buy their um, own of ibuprofen or something and they, they, you know, they're selling it for like 19p for a pack of 12 or whatever you know ridiculously kind of low price for these uh for these drugs that are going to sort your head out after <laughs> um, christmas excess of, after of, a long uh, day with the kids yes <laughs> yeah or yeah more pertinently now a long day with the kids yeah, yeah. but that's it once these drugs are out there and approved and able to be mass produced at very low cost as you say anything like that that can save lives. And I mean, 650,000 lives worldwide is incredible. Um, I think I, I read is, yeah, of those, it's like, you know, at least 12,000 in the UK. So, you know, I think really... it's an incredible achievement. But the interesting thing is that, you know, let's talk about the methodology behind here a little bit, right? Because sure. we've, we, 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 we've talked about this before. We talk about policy evaluation a lot. It's kind of one of the things yeah. that we do as labor economists. And we talk about kind of methodology a lot to some extent. And um, these, of course, in the medical sciences, you know, you don't do this kind of, uh, um, uh, it's not common to do lots of survey type of analysis where you're asking people, how do you feel? Did, did that drug make you feel better? That, that's, that, that, that is scientific in a way, but it's not robust enough for them, right? They really need this kind of idea of cause and effect. And that's why they randomize people into these clinical trials that are usually double blind. And, you know, and then you kind of give people their placebos and their drugs, and then you see what happens to them, right? And it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, and I recommend anybody who's got a bit of interest in this, go to the recovery website. You can just go to the uh, findings and click on the journal articles, and they're very easy to read. They're not complicated to read, and they have some really nice pictures where you can see exactly what the control group and the treatment group, what happens to them. And... Um, you know, I'm looking at it right now, and you can see this kind of graphs going up. These are graphs of mortality. So, you know, you set everybody to a time point, time point zero, and then you see, you know, how many people have died after seven days, right? And it looks like it's 10% on this graph. And then you look at how many people have died after 14 days, two weeks. Now, that looks to be about, I don't know, 15%, something like this, right? And then, and then you literally just wait. And what you can see is that, for example, with the uh, dexamethasone, that the people who got that drug were consistently less likely to die over a very long period, you know, as long as the time series runs here. And you can do some calculation because they have all the numbers there. So, you know, anybody can do their own back of the envelope calculations. The, uh, the control group, the people who, who didn't get the drug, they had 4,000 people. The people who did get the drug, they had 2,000 people. And then you can see who's left at the end. 
and you see there's about a 10 percentage point uh, difference there, right? 10 percent difference. So it's not, you know, it's not. It doesn't save lives, you know, 100 percent. It just yeah. lowers. It's not the a miracle. Risk. It's not a miracle, but it's cheap, it's free, and you know, it saves an extra 10% of people's lives. And, but there's a flip side to this. And there's a flip side. The flip side of that is if you just do the basic maths, um, I calculate that between three and 400 people died to get this result. So now, obviously, we don't know who they are, right? But had, had we known this result before we started, before knowing this result, yeah, you could have saved an extra three to 400 people. And I think there's a real, I think that really hammers at home the kind of the power of um, science, mathematics, statistics, cause and effect. You know, these are all principles that are deeply ingrained in really where, whatever scientific field you're looking yeah. at, that uh, the more serious the question, the more, the more serious the, the solution is. And here the solution, the only solution to save 650,000 people was to essentially let hundreds go. Um, even though I guess one could have saved them had one known something that one didn't know, right? So, I mean, there's always, it's always a bit tricky there, right? But It's, it's a kind of an egg, isn't it? But yeah. uh, I guess you're right. That's a, and that's one of the things that in social science we always run into, right? and it's the same ethical dilemma in the, in the medical science. And literally here we're talking a matter of kind of life and death. Um, but in social science, you often run into this issue of, well, hold on, if you've got this program, um it's on you know it's in some way to only give it to some people and not to other people um and i guess it's slightly i mean it's different when you've got a drug that you think saves someone's life whether you you know and then having the treatment and control and only some people get it if it's an education program that um you know has already or you have strong beliefs right because we might not know they're testing all these different drugs right and and there's reasons to think some of them might work more than others but no one really knows right when they're starting out so it's not like we know that this is going to save people and we're only giving it to certain people okay whereas with the education programs often it's a case of well we know if you're going yeah particularly if you're going to a poorer country and you know that this education program is going to improve the lives of the young people who get it and there it's a question of, okay, well, we're going to randomize to try and put a number, you know, to, to try and work it out and try and put a number on it. And then you do really run into this trying to um, tackle the ethical dilemma that you are only giving it to certain people. It's very difficult. And, um, you know, the example that you mentioned is, you know, so this is one of these kind of bound effects where um, if you can have a positive and negative effect, you might want to randomize things to make sure that, you know, you filter out the negative effect before you apply it to the big population. But if you know it's effective zero or positive, then you're right. You know, it becomes a bit more challenging. Why, why would you, um, you know, at worst, it's not going to do anything and more than likely it will do something. So why not, you know, why, why play around with people's lives and, and, and chances? And, we, and we've talked about this, you know, we've yeah. talked about, you know, uh, education interventions, the loss of schooling through COVID will have permanent long-term effects on people's lives. Now, obviously, death is also a permanent effect <laughs> yeah. from the medical sciences, but, you know, the, you know, economists have the same dilemma. You know, are you going to um, doom somebody to 10 years of lower wages just so that you can get uh, some sort of causal identification behind the policy? So it's quite challenging. I think, um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading some of these academic papers just because, you know, the methodology, uh, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but, you know, they're talking about Kaplan-Meier curve, survivor functions, they're talking about Cox regressions. This is all stuff that you and I uh, know. And this is all stuff that is, you know, basically incredibly simple. This is something we teach our students. And then we say, right, you know, if you ever do this, make sure you make it, you know, you make it more complicated because it's all, it's all a bit simple, really. And here they're using very simple methodologies very effectively because ultimately their research design is so good and so the gold standard that you know they really don't have to do a lot uh in terms of deep mathematical thinking you know we spent a lot of time thinking really hard about complicated statistics and mathematics to to try and get at what they're getting at um but that's the thing you're right i mean it's the goal in a really easy way right oh and it's not easy they had to set the whole thing up but yeah but that's it it's the gold standard because essentially yeah you you don't need any complicated statistical techniques or methodologies when you have got a randomized trial where you put some people into one group, some people into the other group. That's done at random. And then 
you know, if you've got big enough groups so that the kind of characteristics of all the people in the two groups are pretty much the same and it's just really is random who's in the treatment, who's in the control group, then you can be really confident that just comparing the average outcomes in each group, you know, you don't have to do anything else and you're going to get your uh, average treatment effect. So, um, and, and that's why, I mean, let me just tell you a bit of a story. It's, it's kind of a belated, a late Christmas story here. Okay, let me, <laughs> hold on, let me just get my slippers on, my yeah, Christmas put, slippers, I'll get those on. Put your slippers on. And uh, settle yeah. down, and uh, yeah, you tell us the story. Yeah. No, it's, it's, the, the interesting thing here is obviously that lots of scientific disciplines have come to this conclusion a long time ago, right? That, you know, randomization is the gold standard, and that's really what you want to do. That's why if you go to physics, for example, they have really, really tight statistical significances on, on when they discover new particles or whatever it is. I mean, you were talking so tight that it's, you know, their p-value, I don't want to make it, you know, make this too complicated, but we tend to work with p-values of 0.05. They're working with, you know, I don't know, six digits and then a one, right? Sorry, yeah. six zeros and then a one. So just magnitudes more serious than the kind of stuff that we, were, that we work with. And, and, each discipline has kind of had its own realization of, you know, how serious should we take our, our findings, our empirical findings. And in, in our, specifically in our discipline, sort of economics slash labor economics, there was um, a critique back in the early 80s, late 70s, called the Lima critique. So a guy called Lima, and he wrote this beautiful paper, it's got this beautiful name called The Con of Econometrics, right? And econometrics, basically the statistics, the mathematics that, that economists use. And he sort of centered, focused on this word con. And he wrote this long paper basically saying that, you know, a lot of the results that economists produce is, uh, well, he didn't use the word rubbish, but he was certainly <laughs> alluding towards it. And um, he was saying that we need to be very careful whenever we interpret what an economist says and states quantitatively. Now, he didn't completely kill the, the profession. He did say, you know, you should do a kind of bounce analysis and, and, you know, applied economists should show their workings out. So he used this analogy of, you know, show your, show your cooking, show your recipe, you know, show to everybody. That's why we make a big deal about methodologies. That's why we always write everything out, but also in the results, you know, tweak a variable, put in another one, show that result. And if you ever read an economics paper, so, you know, I'm looking at this medical paper, it's super simple. Bam, head results and a story. Our papers are like, here's results, here's results, here's results, here's results, here's results. And somewhere in all these results, we think that is the way. But, yeah. you know, if you think something else, you can take something else out of it. And here's right. the uh, eight appendices of robustness <laughs> checks. It's kind of death by tables. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Try exactly. and show that. Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, because otherwise, we don't generally have these nice, clean experiments. And so we're having to do lots of the technique is to kind of tidy things up and try and get to a situation where we're replicating something like an experiment and so exactly. there's so and, many and, decisions and and you're 100% right but the story gets worse the story gets worse you know this was this was very much a kind of theoretical argument that was written um because whoever knows the truth right when you're when you're writing these kind of things but there was a guy called Lalonde who unfortunately died two years ago at the University of Chicago um and he got hold of some data back from the 1970s and this this i don't know the story behind the data i need to figure this out one day but really groundbreaking stuff basically it was a kind of you know get back to work um training policy which which we have millions of right all, all, all countries have this kind of oh you're unemployed you know go do a training program you know refresh your skills and then go you know yeah then get out and find a job uh, and these are evaluated to death, right? Because there's loads of them and you're putting lots of money into it and you want people to get a job afterwards, right? Very important. So he found some data and he realized that there's this one state in America where they randomized participation in this program. And this was back in the 70s. So really kind of forward thinking by whoever set that up. And he got hold of this data and because of the randomized component, he was able to get a kind of a wage figure. What is the positive benefit of this program? Uh, through basically just come doing a means comparison of what these medical guys are doing and just saying, you know, the randomized component gives me that cause and effect and the, the magic number that is, is, is so famous in this part of the literature is $886, right? That was the, the positive effect of this training program, $886. So that's the kind of, the, and the great thing is now you have a number, now you can go back and say, all right, so let's take our standard survey methods and apply various regression analysis and see where we can get to that number. And lo and behold, you can't. 
right? Nobody could get to this <laughs> number. It was super difficult. You know, there were crazy results coming out uh, that showed effects of, you know, minus 16,000, minus 4,000. Yeah, I'm looking at the death by table right now. I'm seeing the table and it's literally all over the place from 1,500 positive to minus 16,000. Depends on the specification, depends on the variables, depends on the data. I mean, you get different results looking at different data, you know, so it's just not good. And that came out in the 80s and that was kind of the, you know, almost the death blow of modern applied economists because this really showed that, you know, we can't get the right answer. Um, so what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do if you can't get the right answer? You know, who should believe us? And, uh, and since then, and um, there's been this big, big innovation um, since the late 1980s and kind of methodology, but not just methodology, also data and data. You know, I don't want to use the word data science. Economists really hate the word data science, but you know, there's been big innovations in data availability, how we use data, how we handle our data, how other people understand data, you know. Uh, I think, I mean, I think what, you're absolutely right. So there's been a couple of things, I guess there's been developments in technique, right? To try and get better methods to approximate these um, randomized experiments. So that's a big thing. Um, alongside that, there has been better data. So we're much, much more uh, likely to be able to get hold of administrative data. And so you get lots and lots of um, observations. So Often, you, can, you know, in some databases, you can get the whole population and, and also the data linkage. That's been really key. So linking up these different databases. So whether that is, well, we've worked um, together before on data where it's linking up school records with university records, with earnings records, okay, which we've never previously been able to do. Um, but now you've got that and you've got kind of administrative level data. So the data is a lot more accurate, right? Whereas, so you're not turning up to ask people, right? Oh, you know, what are your qualifications? How much do you earn? We're not relying on people telling the truth because, hey, people don't always tell the truth about, you know, how much they earn or what grades they got and that sort of thing. So the quality of the data in terms of measurement, the size of the data sets, the techniques that have been developed, that's all improved. But also we've had this um, development of, doing um, randomized control trials in social science. So yeah, that yeah. was something that I think partly because of, of the difficulty of setting it up and the, these ethical questions we've been talking about never really um, happened before. You know, it was never possible to do that sort of experiment. But since the kind of 2000s, 2010s around there, um, particularly in, in government, and I think a lot of these kind of behavioral science and kind of nudge uh, ideas have, have been very um, popular um, and actually the government set up you know the behavioral insights team where they were looking at okay well how can we kind of just slightly low cost interventions slightly nudge people into doing taking different courses of action um, and because of that this RCT methodology has been used a lot more so whether it's the education yeah. endowment fund or the early intervention foundation uh, and I think they've kind of got around the idea of slightly on some of this ethical dilemma, because if you think, okay, um, some of these things, then, you know, they're just purely experimental. We don't know whether sending a letter to somebody to tell them, you know, you could apply to this university. Um, have you thought about it? You know, it's, it's the, the sharpness of the ethical dilemma is not so high when you just don't know whether this, this letter is going to make a difference or not. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the other thing is as well is just that, um, if you have a certain treatment that you are more confident is going to have a positive effect on people, but you've only got finance for a limited number of, of um, doses or, or, or treatments, how, what's the fair way to dish them out? It's going to be random, right? You've got to, <laughs> so, so it, that plays into the um, support for doing um, social science randomized control trials, because if you've only got a certain amount of resource to split uh, across a lot of people, the only fair way to do it is random. Uh, and that just happens to help you evaluate whether it's, you know, and put a number on how big an effect it has. So I think those kind of innovations in data and technique and also the embracing of using RCTs in social science has just, I, I, I don't know, maybe uh, brought us back a bit from the point in the, in the 80s and 90s where we were at this. Well, I think what you, can be trusted. we've got to be slightly careful. You kind of skipped to the end of the story. I still had a bit more to say. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true what you're saying. And that I think there's a, we are, we're living in a time period now where there's a good balance between all of these things. But, you know, what I was going to say, what happened in the middle time period 
in the kind of 19 early noughties is that you know regression methodology but not only regression uh, methodology or i should just call it methodology really rather than regression methodology yeah. uh, but also data quality and people how people use that data quality so for example these days no modern economist would ever run a regression the way they used to run it in the 70s and 80s and actually there's a whole bunch of things that are coming together not just more data but also computing power uh, better computing software and all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff and actually um, a lot of studies that came after this what's called the Lalonde studies they kind of uh, showed that you can get to the um, you know 886 this magical number uh, in fact uh, one team got to 868 using survey data and uh, and and methodology so you can kind of get there but it's still still you one has to be really careful you know the variation around the true number was shown to be quite extreme which is why a lot of economists continue to put a lot of emphasis on you know methodological design uh, showing you're working out and you know like you say when you can get a randomized component try and go with that but it's 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 interesting that we spent our profession has spent Oh God, why are we now? It's 40 years since this, right? God, 2020, 2021. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, 40 years we were thinking about this really hard to get to a point where our stuff is now really complicated. And, but we can say with a bit more credibility that, you know, this is true or more likely to be caused or whatever. And then I'm looking at this kind of medical paper. It's so super simple and it's so yeah. super clean. And I'm so jealous of kind of what they're doing. Uh, also from an impact perspective, remember, you know, we talked about the REF. I'm a research director sure. in, in, my, in my actual role, in my actual university role. I'm responsible for, you know, telling people, outsiders, what kind of impact our research causes. And, you know, this is just super easy to write. You just have to write. Yeah, you know, we saved 600,000 life, randomized experiment, bam. You know, and oh, I, I, can't, I can't write that. <laughs> well, this is why it's so much, so much more difficult to be a social scientist dealing with Of course, uh, yeah, yeah. We're not applauded data. enough. Yes, we need, we need I more. Think, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a little Christmas story there. Um, so to anyone who's listening, go check out the recovery website. It's, it's very simple to read, really user-friendly, and it's got lots of great information on. Uh, and also keep an eye on it. It will come in the news in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. So, so we talked about, yeah, where we are with, with uh, COVID and, you know, vaccine coming online and these treatments and, and the importance of um, good research design uh, for public policy making, and that is true in uh, economics, and it's true in uh, all, all the kind of public policy uh, disciplines. Uh, so that's the kind of obviously COVID is one big topic. The other big topic, which we have avoided talking about for four years, um, uh, is had quite a big moment, and that is obviously Brexit. Right. So first um, of January, we're end of the uh, transition period, uh, and we're into this new. Uh, relationship and yeah I mean there's been so many words written about it and so many different podcasts and 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 what have you um and so we've avoided talking about it but I think we you know now is a point where we can talk a little bit about it and um you know we are uh labor economists and and, and education economists and so we are able to talk about those areas in in particular um which aren't really that core to the whole kind of Brexit debate, but um, no. you know, we can talk about that. And I guess the key things are, you know, we can talk a little bit about some of the other issues. Um, and I think the key things are really the kind of migration issue and trade, right? Um, these are uh, uh, the bulk of, of, of the big debate, you know, the debates that have been going on for, for years and years over the kind of, should we be in, should we be out? Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk now about sovereignty and how, you know, it's all about uh, taking back control. But if we, you know, I was having a look back at the opinion polls over the, you know, the 2000s, the 2010s, and you look at, you know, what were people concerned about? What were the big issues? And, you know, membership of the EU and kind of sovereignty was not an issue that was coming up in the polls, even at the start of the 2010s. This is, you know, 1% of mm-hmm. people were mentioning this as one of the key issues or, or the most important one percent um and maybe five percent mentioning it as an issue right so these these were the thing this was just not an issue uh whereas obviously the economy 
the NHS, unemployment, you know, these sorts of things were the kind of, you know, the big issues, crime, that sort of thing. Um, but the one thing that was there was migration, right? That was highlighted as an issue um, that was, you know, that was going on and, and was a big issue for people. And I think this is really what the, you know, what the, what the big things were, right? So the whole debate that we've avoided talking about for all this time, a lot of it's been kind of, on the one hand, you had like the economy, the economic arguments uh, that mainly, you know, were the main thing that Remain had on its side. And the Leave side really had this kind of issue of, um, there was the talk of, you know, taking back control of our, our laws, but that wasn't really what was driving the campaign. That was not the issue that got people exercised in the early 20s, uh, 2010s. It was more this kind of migration uh, yeah. issue. So I thought, you know, quite interesting to kind of look now, at, okay, well, what is, you know, what's happened? And what's going to happen, you know, what are we likely to see around those issues as we go into this new relationship? I mean, I think you're right. We've talked about migration a little bit. Uh, I think we've, we've cited, we talked about the fact that certainly from a labor market perspective, there wasn't any significant evidence out there, academic evidence that suggested that the, the positive, and, you know, it was, it is large positive migration into the UK for many years now yeah. uh, had any kind of detrimental effects on 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 labor market on labor market condition of uh, quote-unquote natives right and you know this is one of these old you know if you open your old economic economics textbook and you're looking yeah. at all these you know classical models neoclassical models whatever you want to call them you have these you know it's all very simple you've got these you know, demand slopes going down, supply slopes going up, and, you know, they're changing the thing. But it's all slopes and curves going up and down, right? And I think we've talked about this with monopolies as well. You know, minimum wages, you know, basic economic theory predicts one thing of minimum wages, and lo and behold, the empirical evidence shows something completely else. Uh, in the US, in the UK, across the world, minimum wages do not destroy jobs, do not create higher unemployment. You know, they are absorbed by society uh, because the theory is more complicated. And it's the same with immigration, you know, uh, getting more uh, labor supply in doesn't crowd out uh, indigenous workers, um, especially if, you know, there's a different skill set and there are complements instead of supplements. And then you just keep getting these externalities that are boosting each other and everybody's kind of better off. There's quite a lot of evidence that that, that kind of thing happened. Now, there's, it's, you know, there's <laughs> nuances within that, um, but certainly from our perspective, from a labor market perspective, you know, that there, there was never any kind of problem uh, that one could see, even if one were kind of the native, you know, taking the native point of view. So, yeah, it's, um, we'll, we'll need to wait and see what happens. I mean, I believe that, you know, net migration from the European Union has dropped sharply. Yeah, we... yeah, it has. So, I mean, I looked into this just to see, okay, so this was one of the key issues. Um, and, Thought, okay, so what has happened? And actually, uh, overall net migration has increased since 2016. So in 2016, it was um, 252,000. 2019, it was 270,000. That's the latest uh, data we've got. Um, obviously, there's kind of some story behind that, right? So uh, underneath that overall number, the net migration from the EU has collapsed, right? So this is, un you know, not unexpected. And we've, you know, there's been lots of reports about this and it was 133,000 uh, in 2016 uh, and it was even higher than that it was like 200 something thousand in 2015 and anyway, that's down to like 49,000 uh, in 2019 but migration from the rest of the world which has interestingly has always been under the control of the UK right so the whole big thing about control yeah. our borders the free movement that was the issue right so migration from the rest of the world has always been under our control and that has increased massively from 2016. It was 179,000 in 2016. It's up to 282,000 in 2019. So this is the reason that, you know, migration from the rest of the world has increased massively um, and it has reduced from the EU. Um, so, and it, interestingly, actually, migration from the rest of the world, I looked at the time series and that's been higher for every year since 1991 from the rest of the world, net migration into the mm. UK from the rest of the world has been higher than it has been from the EU for every year from 1991, apart from the three years of 2014, uh, 2013, 14 and 15. So that does coincide with the run up 
to the referendum. So that does give a kind of insight into perhaps this, you know, was seized upon a bit and, and you know, played into that story. But what's going to be interesting now, and, and as Labour economists, we'll have to, you know, see how this plays out. I would say, friends, it's always been the case that this workers coming in has had a kind of complementary effect and has an effect not to crowd out domestic workers, but to actually create uh, more value in the economy, create more jobs, which then leads to more employment for, for, for natives, if you like, and, and also, you know, rising wages. So it's going to depend, you know, we've had this increase in migration from the rest of the world, reduced from the EU, depending on the skill sets and the type of labour that's coming in, that's going to then impact upon what it does to the, to the UK economy. So that is something that we, again, we're going to have to look at over um, a longer time period. But it's just interesting that this big headline about, you know, we want to cut migration and, you know, famously there was the target of 100,000 and actually it's since the referendum, it has gone up. And the, Yeah, <laughs> I think this is the old, old, old failure of, you know, politics and policy, right? You know, what, what, what is the policy? And, you know, I mean, we're called policy matters. And if you look around kind of where, where are the policies from the government of various issues? Now, you don't have to agree with them, but at least, you know, like we've just talked about methodology, one way to turn politics into reality is to go through policies. They are kind of your method, as it were, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was in a meeting the other day where uh, somebody was asking about my performance at, at the workplace and yada, 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 and, 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 and they kind of asked me how I did it. And I said, well, I started by writing a strategy. Then I wrote some operational policies. And then I sat back and did nothing and waited for everything to auto run uh, for a couple of years. And then you got some results. And I said, you did nothing? I was like, well, no, no, I didn't quite mean that. Uh, but, but to not a good, not yeah, a good yeah, idea yeah. to say that yeah, in, your, yeah, yeah. Um, in your review, France, yeah, yeah, to yeah, say, yeah. you know, I did nothing. <laughs> Just tip, tip for the future. You have to be careful, yes. No, but, you know, there, there is a point here, right? That, and, and the point is that, you know, set up your policies and then let them run. Okay, and, you know, what we've seen from this government, now, I, 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 I do agree that COVID, for example, is very difficult. And you are very reactive to a... Um, certain things but still you can set up a policy like the whole school closure things where you know we're debating literally up until monday when schools have opened that we should close them on tuesday you know you could have had a policy ages ago that says if you cross a certain threshold of numbers you know you're shutting schools automatically for two two weeks that's a policy you don't have to do anything you you just rock up to bbc as a minister and say look you know we wrote the policy back in the summer yeah this has now happened therefore the result is this and end off right that's the policy yeah so you know, there's kind of a, a, a lack of policy, I think, at the moment. Uh, the UK needs to find its way in the world. Um, like you've mentioned, the whole trade effects. We're not trade economists. Um, most trade economists didn't predict good things coming out of this. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens for migration. We'll have to wait and see what happens on the general economic effects. Um, so I think a lot of the initial, and that's also, you know, you can see, on the news stories that were kind of following this, you know, the world didn't collapse on the 1st of January. Uh, you know, trucks were still delivering their goods back and forth and the agreement was signed. So, you know, quote unquote, it's all good. But um, we see a lot of individual effects. So individual, I don't want to call them liberties, but individual rights were taken away. People were turned away at airports saying, you can't do this, you can't come here. Uh, probably both ways. Um, other events have, you know, I am affected. I was, I mentioned my Lego earlier. Yeah. Uh, my Lego supplier is, um, I, I like, I like playing with Lego. I, I'll admit that. And I'm one of these adults, what that's called, it's called something, adults into Lego, something like this. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I got my little city here with lights and everything, you know, it's all customized. Nice. Yeah. Well, I had to do something, you know, I started it this year <laughs> during COVID, <laughs> during the first COVID lockdown. Yeah. Buying Lego. So anyway, but you know, if you want to buy old Lego, for example, so the Lego store itself in the UK, they refresh their products all the time, right? So a product's only there for six months and then it goes out of stock and you can't get it again. So there's a big secondhand market for Lego pieces. Worldwide market, right? right? And there's websites that are like eBay, but just for Lego. And you can go there and, you know, purchase your Lego, click, 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 super easy. And it's all this little, and these are people basically selling Lego from their house right? Yeah. Uh, lots of small little suppliers to selling Lego pieces to fans around the world. Uh, and that has all stopped. That, you know, they're not supplying, you know, they're supplying the whole world and bam, they're not supplying the UK anymore. Um, 
uh, not even related to Brexit, but some other VAT changes that, that are making life a little bit difficult. Um, but I think no. that's, one, that's one of the small things, like you say, that's, that's changing. And what I find quite interesting about this whole um, debates, and, and as I say, you know, there's been years and years of very in-depth technical debates and, uh, and, and some very abstract debates about kind of sovereignty and, and these kind of issues and freedoms and what have you. But as you say, the economic effects are not now because we have this trade and cooperation agreement we haven't got the kind of chaos that we saw um, with all the lorries. And, you know, we had a kind of preview of what it could have been like, right, in the, in the week or so before Christmas um, with all those lorries parked up. And, you know, that was obviously related to COVID testing. And so we haven't had these lorry parks all full yet um, because we've got this agreement. But the kind of longer term effect on the economy, on trade, and, the, you know, the trade is going to drive the effect on the economy, we're not going to see that it's not an instant effect right so i mean the government's estimates their own estimates are that it's going to have a negative effect of of five you know 5.2 percent lower gdp over 15 years but this is compared to what it would have been if we'd stayed in the eu and it's not a case of okay things are going to get poorer it's just poor the economy is still going to grow it's just going to grow less and this is not something that you immediately feel in the same way you would feel it if you know suddenly the lorry stopped going across the channel okay so those effects um, the economic effects are going to be a very slow burn, but also this kind of sovereignty effect, you know, this kind of, all oh, right, now we've taken back control. No one is noticing this in their day-to-day lives. Like, certainly not, you know, straight from 1st of January. There's no, that kind of abstract sense in which we can take back control. Um, you know, the, the sense in which you might have felt it would be in the migration, but as we've seen, though, you know, that's, I think, that's I always think... been under control and, uh, and, and it hasn't been changed, but it is in the little ways like yeah trying to get your lego turning up at the airport needing your passport to have an extra you know at least six months on it um if you want to take your pet on holiday uh you're going to have to you know months in advance get the forms all of these little ways are going to affect people this is what people are going to notice in their day-to-day life well i think you're right and but when you say the sovereignty i think people do feel the sovereignty but in a negative way at this point in time rather than a positive way and if, if you look at my own kind of I'll tell you another story. This is my origin story, okay. right? Very briefly, short biography, Franz Buschner, right? You know, I, I was born in East Germany, back when it was East Germany, on the other side of the, of, of, of the wall, right? The Iron Curtain. And, um, you know, that was, that was you know, <laughs> life looked pretty different. Um, and the opportunities looked pretty different uh, when I was a young child. Now, we left uh, in, in 1986, uh, so before the war came down to West Germany and contrary to popular belief, not everybody ran across the world. I was going to say, did you, did you machine gun fire? And, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. There was a legal way. You can apply. That would, that you would can have been a good, or, a good origin story, a good film for that. Friends Bush <laughs> jumped in the wall. Yeah, no, no. It, happened. it was just a train. I remember, uh, you know, you put your hand up, you say you want to leave. Uh, they give you a hard time for a couple of years and then depending on certain circumstances which you know obviously there was a kind of a buyout program from west to east where the east german government uh, got some hard cash by basically quote-unquote selling citizens to the west those who had family connection all that kind of stuff you could leave you know it took a couple of years but so we left legally in 1986 and ended up in west germany with nothing right because it was literally two suitcases and two kids and and that was it and then good luck and uh, so, you know, we're talking about a migration story here, right? And then we ended up in the Netherlands and my parents got jobs and bought their house, sent me to a British school, funnily enough, because they knew that British education was very good. And then I ended up at the English University and yada, yada. Now I'm here in London working all that kind of stuff, right? But all of that is kind of seen through the prism of, of, of Europe, okay? So once, once we got into Europe, you know, there were opportunities there. For, for people to kind of make their way to travel across. You know, my wife is from the Mediterranean. So I go <laughs> to the Mediterranean every summer. It's great. Absolutely love it. Uh, better than Germany. And, um, you know, there are opportunities that have unfolded in my life that come as a direct result of Europe and the original kind of values behind the European Union that weren't so much about the economic benefits, although it's often, you know, that's one of the kind of quote-unquote excuses. The original thing was obviously very much about, you know, let's not have another war. Yeah. Let's, let's make sure that we avoid conflict within the European Union, all that kind of stuff. And let's give people these opportunities to kind of travel, whatever, do business, all that kind of stuff. And from there, you got more rights, more opportunities, and all that kind of stuff. And in my life, I've kind of directly felt a lot of those. 
And I kind of find it a bit of a shame that people in the UK will now be denied that kind of opportunity the other way. Now, you can argue, okay, how many young British people go to Germany and build a life there and all that kind of stuff? It's probably not that many, but you're forgetting one important group who do go to Europe and settle down, and those are our elderly couples. So there are yeah. loads of British people who, once they go into retirement, go whoosh off to Spain, they buy their holiday house or buy their primary house or to Greece or wherever it is, and they settle down there and they have a good life, right? I mean, how many times have I watched daytime TV and there's some program called, I don't know what it's called, you know, a, a home far away or something like this. Yeah, yeah. It's about purchasing a home and it's always Spain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, that's been running for, I don't know, 20 years or something like this. You know, that reflects something in, in, this, in, in society here. Yeah. So, you know, that opportunity is now gone for a lot of people. Or at least it's made more difficult. And, uh, you know, that's something that I think is, is, is a bit of a shame personally. So that's my own personal opinion on this. I think, you know, you can argue about the economic benefits left and right. And I'm smart enough as an economist to, to, to I think it's negative. That's my, that's my gut feeling. But, you know, you can certainly have different viewpoints on that. But, you know, the, the, the absence of this, you know, opportunity really across this continent, I think that's a big shame for a lot of people. I mean, it doesn't affect me. I still have my European passport. <laughs> but uh, you, for example, it will affect you. It affects me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't have any European um, ancestry or, or, you know, anyone where I can claim, uh, <laughs> keep the Burgundy passport by a, a relative. Um, but yeah, so I think you're right. It's, it's those opportunities and um, yeah, those those people retiring to Spain who can't now watch Sky or Virgin TV, you know, on their on their iPads or listen to Spotify or anything like that because no longer are those things kind of working, right? But, so, you know, I think the sum of those effects for individual, you know, you might laugh about it. Oh, I can't watch Sky yeah. TV on my iPad in, 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 in Tenerife. But, you know, a lot, you know, that will annoy you. Oh, absolutely. And if you sum that up, it's a lot of annoyance. Exactly. Yeah, this is it. This is the, this is the irony is that these, these big questions of sovereignty and economic, long-term economic impact are really not going to be felt by anybody very sharply anytime soon. But anyone who goes into Europe and suddenly like, oh, I can no longer listen to my music. That is where it's going to be felt. And yeah, there's going to be a lot. And then when you get home and your mobile phone bill is through the roof, that's, <laughs> these are the ways it's going to affect people. And yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's a shame. Um, it's a shame. But I guess one thing we've learned in the past uh, 12 months is that you just do not know what is going to happen around the corner. And um, we'll, we'll see. There will be challenges that we haven't foreseen and there'll be potentially opportunities uh, that come along. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll, it's, it's one we'll have to revisit in a future uh, episode of, of, of Policy Matters in, in, in a year or in, in 10 years uh, and see uh, where we are with that and, and how things have played out. Are we still doing this in 10 years? Oh, my God. I think I've just committed us to another 10, another ten years. But, ten, um, seasons. ten seasons. We'll we have see. to wait for our contract. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be the, uh, the, the Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson of, the, uh, of, of Share Radio. We'll All right, okay, good. Well, on that note, I think we'd better call it here. On that bombshell, yeah, we'll uh, call it a day there. But we will be back, uh, and as I said at the start, we have a lot of interesting guests lined up. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Fantasy Bushra. And we'll be back with more and with guests soon. <laughs>